This is Dave Gray, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Dave Gray. I am uh, the founder of a company called Explain, and I have spent my whole life focused on uh, helping people explain things to themselves, to others, to um, to create change. Oh, I thought you built the X-Plane. That's what I... No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> uh, so I'm uh, I'm excited to finally be chatting with you. We've, we met each other through a listener, actually, a listener recommendation. So thank you for that and keep them coming. Um, but then when I found you and started diving into your work, I realized that we're, we've sort of been in each other's orbits or at least like, you know, have friend of a friend connections throughout uh, the industry. And yet we had never chatted. So I've been looking forward to this chat for a while. Me too. Yeah. So... Um, one of the, I mean, one of the biggest things let's, let's, we'll dive in, we'll sort of scope through a lot of your work, but let's might as well start at the end because that makes perfect sense. Um, and I want to talk a bit about you, the new book is liminal thinking, which is really all about beliefs. And I I loved the idea of it because I have this thing that when I wrote the Mist of creativity, one of the things I wasn't smart enough to put in the book that I wish I did is the thing that I open most of my um, talks and conversations with now when I go out and give speeches on the book, which is this phrase, the stories that we tell ourselves are true even if we're not, even if they're not true. And I dive mm-hmm. into a little bit of confirmation bias research and, and again, this idea that our, our beliefs shape us and probably the most potent way they shape us is just by entertaining the belief, it begins to become true even when it's not true. And I love that you sort of take an aim at that for better or for worse. Yeah, uh, the the liminal thinking. You know, so I've written uh, three or four books now, depending on how you count. And every I've spent, I'm sort of a problem solver, so I spent a lot of my life uh, solving problems. And one thing that you've probably you may have come across as well is when you solve problems. Every time you solve a problem, the uh, a new problem emerges. <laughs> so uh, uh, liminal thinking is one of those things that I had been. Um, it was a problem. It, it solves a problem that I had recognized or had come across many times in my life, but uh, didn't have an answer to, didn't have a solution to. And you know, being someone who's you know spent my life focused on helping people understand ideas and grasp compl- complexity and and uh, 
help to build shared understanding, I had a bias, I guess, that um, most of the challenges inside of organizations that stopped uh, change, most of the barriers for change or innovation inside of organizations were simply because people didn't understand things, that they were too complex or too confusing. And many times that is the case, but sometimes you can explain something very clearly and people can understand it very clearly and it still doesn't change their mind. They just, they, they just don't want to do it. And in a large organization where there's lots of power and, and fear and other things, um, you can't just say no. Um, and so the easiest and most polite way to say no in a large organization is to say that uh, you don't understand something. Hmm. And so that's often, or it's too complex or, you know, there, there are a lot of ways, there are a lot of ways of saying no that don't actually sound like no, as you can imagine. And so, um, you know, I've, you know, I'd come across situations in my uh, work life. We're doing all this consulting work with large organizations on change and innovation initiatives of various types. And we would hit this barrier and I would think, okay, well, people are saying they're confused. They're saying they don't understand, but I'm pretty sure they do. So well, now what? <laughs> you know, we've hit this barrier. You know, the, it's the people stuff, right? You know, um, there are lots of, and especially in large organizations, there are lots of places you can hide and lots of ways to hide, lots of ways to resist, um, lots of, uh, you know, ways to do things, to stop things from happening. As most organizations are built um, in such a way that a lot of people have the power to say no and very few people have the power to say yes. That's a, sort of a fact of life in large organizations. Yeah, the and sort so, of hierarchy of no, right? Yeah. So how do you break through as a leader, uh, as a person who's trying to create change in some way, whether it's you're launching a new product or you're you're uh, you're trying to uh, install a new way of working or a new technology or a new process or something, whatever it is that you're trying to change? How do you overcome all of that kind of organizational resistance? And even if you're not a leader, you know, and this is I've heard a lot, too. This is a question I got a lot. Hey, uh, Dave all this change stuff is great, but I'm not the CEO. So what can I do? I'm in the middle. Uh, what can I do? And those were the things that were, um, kind of like the, uh, the obstacles that were, that I kept hitting and coming across that I was trying to figure out how to get past them. And that's the, uh, those are the questions that liminal thinking is answers. Hmm. Yeah, no, I love it. And I, I love, hmm. to me, there's a lot of, um, for lack of a better word, thinking about how we think that you first unpack in, in liminal thinking. But really, I mean, it's, it's broader than that throughout your work. But I mean, it really is confronting, you know, like you said, this, this, there's first this belief that when people uh, want to say no, but don't know how to say no, they say they don't understand, right? Which is the first sort of like quirk of human behavior that I think a lot of people don't realize that some of our initial hesitance, the initial reason for our, our no might be like you said, that lack of understanding. But there's also, I think, a lot of times a lack of realization about how we think and where our beliefs come from. Like I remember, the chapter I'm thinking of in particular in, in liminal thinking was um, this idea that beliefs are created, that all beliefs are created, right? We, I mean, I am guilty of this because I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old and I'm trying to sort of teach them things. And I think you, we, we exist in a system in a society that sort of imparts beliefs to us. But a lot of beliefs are are created. We're the actual creators of them. 
Yeah, well, even even in the case of your kids, you know, when you say you're trying to teach them things, you're you're trying to create beliefs. <laughs> yeah, I'm you're trying try- to convince you- them to adopt my beliefs, but they still have to create them themselves. That's right. Yeah. So I think it's kind of like, you know, uh, so this belief thing is what I bumped up against um, as the kind of the root cause of a lot of uh, resistance to change. And, you know, one way of thinking about it is you know, people do what they do based on the things that they think. And if you, uh, if, if you want people to change what they do, then you have to find a way to figure out how to get in under the skin of how they think. And you have to understand the way they think in order to change the way they think, because, you know, new idea, you know, any, anytime, every, nobody is starting with a blank slate. we like to say that we are, but nobody's starting with a blank slate. They may, Everybody has a history of experiences. Maybe they have a history of experiences that are, you know, bad experiences with authority figures. Maybe it has nothing to do with you. Maybe it has nothing to do with your initiative or your your company or your project. It could be, it could be all kinds of stuff. And before you can actually um, uh, convince someone or persuade someone to a, a new way of thinking about things, you, you, you have to have some level of understanding about the way that they think about things today. Yeah, well, and the the thing that I think is interesting too is not only how they're thinking about things today, but you know, I I brought up the example of me and and children deliberately, because it's also uh, to some extent, in, especially in a business context, it's the organizational beliefs. I mean, beliefs are fundamentally a way. I mean, you talk about this too, a way of sharing or creating almost a shared value system, a shared set of assumptions, like uh, for lack of a better term, indoctrination. And it can be a good thing or a bad thing, and you have to sort of examine it. You have to know the individual, but you also sort of have to know the hive mind. Yeah, and even it even extends beyond the company. It's, I mean, it, it happens at all levels. You know, culture is, uh, you know, culture is a sort of the set of belief systems that, you know, and stories that any group is telling themselves, right? You can have culture in a family. You can have it in a um in a group within a company, like a finance department culture, you can have a procurement uh, culture, you can have a sales culture, you can also have a whole company culture, you can have a culture of a country or, you know, there's some, some, some cultures that span like the, the, the culture in journalism where I came from is, uh, is pretty global. I mean, you go walk into any newsroom around the world, you're, if you're, if you're imbued with that culture, you're going to recognize it. And, uh, so I think there's something about recognizing the level of abstraction or the level of granularity you want to work at. There's a, I remember a friend of mine telling me about a culture, kind of a program he was working on with a company, and it was a, a British company. And um, they bumped into some cultural stuff that was just English. It wasn't even, it wasn't even a company thing. And the you know, the, 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 what, how it manifested was there was a truck driver and a CEO and they were in this room together and the, the truck driver just refused to call the CEO by his first name, even when invited by the CEO, even when, you know, Hey, let's talk. Um, because, uh, at least for some people in England, you know, that's, you know, you're betraying your class. You're betraying the working class. If you make friends with the CEO, you're never going to go to the same pub as the CEO, as a CEO in England, if you're a truck driver, you're a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a betrayal of your, of your, of your class. And, uh, I think that's hugely interesting because I, 
So I was raised, and this became a point of contention as as we grew older, right, by my parents to refer to adults, by you know, Mister or Mrs. or Ms. And it was a, it was a respect issue. But I, I I've never even considered the idea that other people would see it as no, I I can't call you by your first name because that would mean I like you and that you're a, you're <laughs> a member of my group and I want to stay in my group. Therefore, I'll call you Mister So and So in order to stay you know aligned with my own working class. That's a so right away I'm aware that my beliefs are not universal. But that's a really interesting example. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, and that's what I mean by you know I think so. I know you think about a lot about leadership and and strategy and one of the core elements of any strategy is position, right? You want to, you want to, um, improve your position relative to your competitors or relative to your customers, whatever that might be. And the, the challenge, I think one of the challenges that you face is in order to change your position, you have to understand the position that you're in. And I think one of the most common mistakes that people make in, trying to create change is assuming that they understand the current state hmm. by which I mean, not only what's going on with, uh, the world customer or marketplace, but actually what's going on inside the minds of people and why, what motivates them to act in the way that they do the, to do the things they do, why they're doing the things that they do and even what they're doing. I mean, the larger the organization, the less, the senior management can actually know the in in high detail what's actually going on on the ground, um, and there are a lot of, especially in large organizations, there are a lot of filters that, um, well intentioned, they filter out a lot of details so you can actually think more holistically, but no one you know there's some human dynamics and nobody wants to tell their boss bad news generally speaking. Um, so most of the bad, you know, and the higher you are in the hierarchy, the more the bad, the more bad news is filtered out all the way up. And, um, by the time you're at the top, you, you know, unless you're triangulating by walking around on the ground and getting a lot of, you know, um, sort of ancillary information, you can become very removed from reality without even intending to. Now, now here's the interesting thing. Uh, because a lot of this starts, like you were saying, with that positioning, with that awareness, with et cetera. And this is a bit like, um, you know, this is a bit like one fish asking another one, how's the water, right? <laughs> or or human, I mean, to, we make fun of fish, but in reality, humans didn't realize air was a thing until around 200 years ago. So, you know, so there's that. But it is, it's that, it starts with that sort of awareness. And you talk about the dangers of, of not being aware. First, it starts with this idea. So how do you, either you as an intervention or how, what advice would you have for people to begin to actually realize beliefs are not universal and they're not necessarily even true. They become true by sort of believing in them. But how, how do you begin to make people aware of that framework? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And, um, one of the things that I think is the most important, so you have to start with yourself, right? So one of the most uh, basic assumptions that uh, a lot of us have is that we are objective. Now, like we're the one who's seeing this objectively and the other, other people are the ones who are not seeing it objectively. And it's a fact of human nature and cognitive bias that it's much easier to see the logical flaws in other people's <laughs> beliefs than it is to see them in your own beliefs. And so the most important starting point is to recognize and very clearly and unambiguously say to yourself, 
I am not objective. No one is objective. I mean, ob objectivity is, I mean, it's, it's kind of a myth. It's something that we shoot for. Uh, but even scientists uh, fool themselves all the time, even with experiments. I mean, uh, there were scientific experiments that proved the world uh, was flat, uh, that the world was not rotating. I mean, they're very, like you say, we only discovered air 200 years ago. And, um, you know, the, I can describe the experiment that proved that the Earth was not in motion. That's pretty simple. You just go to the very highest tower you can find and you drop a rock. Hmm. And clearly, if the world was actually rotating, the rock would fall at a distance from where you drop it. But in the, what happens is it falls directly down, right? So um, that's, that was science in Galileo's time. It was proven. It was evident. There was evidence for it and everything else. Uh, doesn't mean it was right, right? Was, the, and that's the thing is you, you may feel like you're objective, but you don't know all the things that you're missing. And um, you can't be objective. I mean, uh, and at the end of the day, we all are living human experiences true so, as well. So, you, you, know, um, you know, I'm a 54-year-old white man. I am never going to truly be able to understand what it, what it, what the experience of being a woman or a black person is in America, you know, um, at this point in time, in this point in history. Well, but wait a minute. So I thought you came from the world of journalism. Isn't that, isn't journalism the pursuit of objectivity? No, I'm kidding. There's, there's no reason to unpack 2017 and fake news. We can, we can here, talk but... about, you know, we can talk about journalism. <laughs> I don't mind. Uh, you know, I think there is, uh, it is something that we say that we shoot for in journalism. Um, I would say having worked in newsrooms, I mean, you, you could, I mean, if you look at the, um, if you want to look at the polls that were taken in 2016 about, you know, who was uh, deemed most likely to win the presidential election, and you can see a lot of that, those assumptions going awry. I mean, you could see that, uh, I mean, um, uh, there was a whole segment of the population that wasn't getting hit by those polls. Right. And, um, so that's one of the things about, even when you try and be objective, you, you can never be certain that you haven't uncovered all of your blind spots ever. Uh, but I think the most, so, um, the point being, the reason I start there is because I think it's important to recognize that if you have, no matter what it is, if there's a problem you are trying to solve, uh, it's a very common and very human uh, and very natural thing to say, to think of yourself as outside the problem. But if it's a problem that actually matters to you in some way, you're not outside of the problem. You're inside the problem. And I think you want to, it's very important to recognize if you tr truly want to solve a problem, the difference between being inside of it and being outside of it. Yeah, so you bring up an interesting term there that you mentioned, which is which is blind spots, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think that you know the problem, and this applies to journalism, but in general, around this beliefs idea is that we assume when someone is being subjective, they are being subjective deliberately, right? And this is, I think, the resistance, like I said, in journalism, but in a lot of cases where people assume objectivity, they assume objectivity because objectivity is their intent. But again, you start with the awareness that that's not actually possible. And some of it isn't, again, because you intend to reinterpret facts to say, to predict a certain outcome. It's just because of those blind spots. To use the rock dropping analogy, that's a great experiment unless the earth is massive and so massive that that a teeny little rock is not actually that big of a deal. 
Yeah, well, and also the the the, um, uh, the fact that there's air and that air is moving at the same speed that the Earth is moving, um, you know, which is another piece of the puzzle there. Uh, like so, the, you know, but you know, this experiment was conducted to to the point that you made. It's just conducted before anyone knew there was such a thing as air. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that's true too, and and uh, and the, and hence wind resistance and that sort of stuff too, which I think is is hugely interesting. But again, it's that blind spot. We we tell ourselves certain stories that shape how we see the world, but also they shape what we don't see. And so becoming mm-hmm. aware of that, I mean, you have, I think there's a, there's a section in liminal thinking or in one of your other works about that idea of just becoming aware um, of those blind spots, uh, which, which begs the interesting question. How do we becoming aware is one of them. How do you train someone on seeing, is it seeing around corners or is it just uh, awareness and that's it? Or how, how do we start to be able to see in those blind spots? Well, you can't always um, see into those blind spots. And that's, I guess why we call them blind spots, hmm. but you can, you can infer them. You can figure So like, here's the thing. Um, there are two ways that people make sense of new ideas. One is, uh, 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 uh I forget the term, but it's, uh, does it make sense within the system? Coherence. That's the word. Um, does it make sense within the system as a, the world, as I understand it, does it make sense within my bubble, my way of understanding the world? Um, the second is, can I test it? Can I validate it? Can I do some kind of experiment to see if it's true? The problem is that we only tend to test those ideas that already make sense to us. If, a, if we hear an idea that doesn't make sense, why would we test it? And so what ends up happening is a kind of a, I suppose you could call it a kind of a vicious cycle where if you're only testing the stuff that already makes sense to you, you're never going to learn, really learn anything that's truly groundbreaking or, you know, you're ever going to recognize something that's really different because the things that are the, the most dramatic learning experiences are going to be things that don't make sense to you at first. Yeah. I did. So I wrote about this a bit in the myth of creativity where I refer to it as the expertise myth that mm-hmm. as you grow in expertise, you actually kind of limit your ability to have the, the most novel ideas and the reason that you do isn't that you don't come up with them. It's that you never test them. You you come up with them and you immediately dismiss them because they're kind of like something else you already have experience with. And since that didn't work, you just don't bother to spend any effort testing this next one. It's not coherent with the the worldview and the perspective that your expertise has, has shaped. And, and this is why, you know, 30-year-old physicists are always the ones that win the Nobel Prize or, or do the work that wins them the Nobel Prize in their 30s. Because they're sort of, for lack of a better term, young and dumb enough to not have so much coherence. So when crazy ideas present themselves, they think, oh, you know, it only costs time and I, why not test it? And then they end up finding out stuff about our world that, that we originally thought was crazy. Yeah, well, that, that seems to be, you know, that's so, sort of what Elon Musk is uh, doing with Tesla, with uh, electric cars, solar power, drilling under tunnels under the earth, and space, building spaceships. He's... Um, He's very schooled in physics and uh, a good mathematician, and he's just kind of, you know, uh, calculating uh, things and figuring out. Okay, well, even he's not he's he's not doing he's not thinking based on technology. He's thinking based on physics and what's possible, and then extrapolating backwards from that, which is a really interesting way to go about thinking about business. 
Well, and, and what's interesting to me, too, is there there's not so much the sort of people piece, you know, so to use the tunneling, for example, with the boring company. You know, I saw him speak a couple of weeks ago in a Q&A at, at TED, and he was talking about it for a while and talking about how they want to do a test run of this high um, high speed highway in tunnels underground in Los Angeles. And during the break, everyone was like, that'll never work because people in Los Angeles won't sign off on that. The city will never give approval of that. But he doesn't necessarily think about those people dynamics, right? So other people, it's the lack of coherence, right? The idea that, <laughs> that these people are never going to approve of this in their backyard, so why bother even testing it? Whereas he's looking at, well, is it possible? Let's start there. Is it possible? And then we'll, we'll worry about how we sell it to people later. That's not to say he hasn't thought of it because in the same conversation, he was talking about autonomous driving and he said the very astute thing that, it needs to be as safe or safer than an airplane. It's already safer than a car, but we don't, we're not going to give up control until it's as safe as something that we're already used to giving up control in, which is an airplane. So he, he definitely thinks about it, but he doesn't think about it first, which I think becomes a huge advantage. Yeah. And I think that's what, when I talk about the, um, when I use the term liminal thinking, the reason that I use that term is because liminal is a word that means threshold boundary, um, subliminal is something that's below the threshold of consciousness. Um, and it, it's, uh, that's, that's the sequel, right? To liminal thinking, subliminal <laughs> <laughs> post liminal. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that the idea of, um, behind liminal thinking is that there are these invisible boundaries. Uh, there are the, these boundaries that we create for ourselves all the time. And, you know, blind spots are not necessarily a bad thing and, and focus is, you know, they allow us to focus. I mean, blinders on a, the reason horses have uh, blinders is so they can focus on what's in front of them and not be distracted by a bunch of other things. And um, the reason that, um, you know, we develop blind spots is by focusing on things. They, they you know, uh, when you narrow your field of focus, you are creating blind spots. You, you focus on something really uh, strongly. That's what allows you to focus. So blind spots are not necessarily a bad thing. It, they become a bad thing when you forget that they're there. Hmm. That's interesting. So I, I want to, um, we've been talking for a while at the, at the sort of macro, right. And the huge world shaping, um, ideas. But since you said this blind spots, especially they become, uh, it, when you don't know they're there, et cetera, I, w- I want to take it down to the micro and talk about every day, n- not boring tunnels under Los Angeles, not, yeah, building, not rockets <laughs> to Mars, but the everyday there is, I th- I'm pretty sure it's in liminal thinking. It's in something of your work that I read that talks about sort of habits as a system of beliefs and also a system of sort of creating blind spots and the need to sort of examine our, just our habits, the things we do every day, the beliefs that sort of undergird them and, and willingly disrupt them to start becoming more aware of what we're not seeing. Yeah, that's probably the the central theme of the liminal thinking book anyway, is this idea that we, you know, your blind spots become embedded in your daily behavior. You you wake up in the morning, you do the stuff that you do. Um, you We develop routines and habits that um, the, the word that I use for that is autopilot. You put yourself on autopilot, just like when you drive to work or, uh, you know, make your breakfast, whatever those things are you have routines that you develop just so you don't have to think while you're doing them. So you can, your mind can be elsewhere and it's autopilot is not a bad thing. It, it gives you the ability to think about a, you know, a business problem while you're washing the dishes or, or what have you, while you're doing these kind of mindless chores. However, um, and even organizations develop these, you know, people come in, they run through their days. Imagine a, 
any kind of big uh, company is like a giant ant colony where each ant is coming in and doing their thing and they're some of them may interact, but most of them are not aware of what other people are doing and everybody's kind of running on autopilot. And um, that's what we, we call a repeatable process, right? It's a good thing if we can get a company, the, the whole idea is to get a company to run completely on autopilot so nobody has to worry about anything. Um, that would be nice if we could do it, but it, it doesn't really seem to work out that way because the company's also got to be evolving and changing as consumer demands and that kind of thing change. I was going to say, it'd be, it'd be great if the world never changed. There's just a right. wee little problem with that one. <laughs> yeah, so the thing, I guess, uh, the reason that autopilot is important is if everything, if your autopilot is working for you and everything's going great, then uh, maybe you don't have a need for change in your life. Maybe things are going well. But if, for whatever reason, you ha it's problematic. Uh, you, you have something that you want to change in your life, Everybody has something they want to change, whether it's the relationship you have with your boss or um, maybe you you uh, you want to move somewhere in your career or it could be a family thing. Um, if you have something where you feel stuck and you don't know what to do, the most the best thing you can possibly do is to learn how to shut off your autopilot. You don't have to be smart enough to figure out solutions. Um and the thing that shutting off your autopilot does is it will break a, you know, your routine is not just a sole thing that you do by yourself. I mean, washing the dishes might be, but a lot of the autopilot routines are interactions that, interactions that you have with other people. There's an autopilot way probably in your company that you have meetings. I know there's an autopilot way in my company that we have meetings. We have we have a WebEx uh, thing that gets dialed up and the first five minutes is everybody trying to make sure everybody's on. And there's a whole routine that we go through that we all understand and everyone's operating in the same way. Well, as long as everything's running smoothly, you don't have to worry about it. But when you have starting having problems and you don't have a solution, shutting off your autopilot can make uh, some really great and interesting things happen. You don't have to know what the answer is, you just have to shut off the autopilot because your autopilot, the chances are that the habits and routines that are have become invisible to you are connected to the problem, are part of the problem. And you're not seeing them because they're so embedded in your behavior. So it's not an easy thing to learn how to do. I'll give you an example from my personal life. I think this is an example I put in the book. Um, I, will, uh, I had an argument with my wife. Uh, and it was one of those arguments where, I don't know, like maybe you've had one of the, are you married, David? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, maybe you've had but one we of never, these. But we never argue. Ever. I'm sure. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, well, then you probably don't know this feeling, but um, this was the feeling of, I'm not sure how we got into an argument and I wasn't intending to get in an argument, but somehow I ended up sleeping on the couch and I'm not sure what happened. And I, I, even the next day, I wasn't sure what what happened, but yeah, I, I knew I don't know what that's like at all. OK, I mean, right. we have a guest bedroom. That's what I mean. We have a, we have a guest bedroom. So it was the morning after one of those uh, arguments and um, uh, I was uh, sitting in a chair and reading the news on my iPad or whatever. It was a Saturday morning. It was a very cold morning. Um, and uh, my wife sort of came down and walked by me very quickly and sort of like in a, almost a drive by fashion 
she was said, uh, well, were you even going to come and, and see if I'm alive? And I couldn't even answer because she was already gone, making her coffee, took it back upstairs. I was sitting there and I started to think, okay, how do I shut off my autopilot? Because in order to shut it off, you have to understand what it is, right? And I'm sitting there going, okay, this is an autopilot. I recognize this is an autopilot scenario because I've been here before. That's how you know, right? I've been here before. And I thought, okay, what's my autopilot? And I thought, and my, the autopilot was actually not that hard to figure out. Our autopilot was just we didn't talk to each other when, when we were upset with each other like this. And it could go on for a whole day or maybe even two days if it was a really bad you know, argument. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to shut off my autopilot. So what does that mean? It means I can't not talk to her. I have to, I have to get up and, and go talk to her. So I got up, I, uh, walked up the stairs. I, um, um, I, I knocked on the door. I peeked in. She was sitting there. She looked up at me like, what the heck are you doing here? Cause this is, I already had screwed up the routine, right? By even showing up. So she gave me a look and I said, and I didn't even know what I was going to say until the words came out of my mouth. But I said, I'm just checking to see if you're alive. What's well, kind of, she had given me a clue, right? <laughs> um, and she just looked at me and then she said, are you going out? And I thought, okay, well, it's my autopilot. My autopilot is, um, no, hell no, I'm not going out. It's freezing cold and it's a Saturday. I haven't even put shoes on. I'm not going anywhere, but again, turning off the autopilot. So what's, what's the opposite? Uh, and I said, yeah, yeah, I'm going out. And this was very, this wasn't something I planned, but I was just like, okay, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm, I'm going out. And she sort of smiled at me and she said, are you going to McDonald's? <laughs> and I said, well, yes, I am. I am going to McDonald's. That's, and can I get you anything while I'm there? And by that time she was laughing and it broke the spell as my point. Uh, <laughs> You know, you don't, and this, these, this happens all the, you get in these routines with your bosses, with everyone. And the fact is that we're almost like, uh, hypnotized dancers in a ballroom. Uh, we're dancing the same steps over and over every day with all these people that we interact with. And the thing is, if one person steps out of the dance, then your dance partner has to, has to react to that. And by turning off your own autopilot, and starting in a different down a different direction, other people have to they are forced to respond by shutting off their autopilot because as you know they rely on your part of that uh, hip, hypnotized dance to for their next move. And so suddenly you take a move that's off of the script. You the the really powerful thing about that is it brings your attention back into the present moment and it brings their attention back into the present moment. And the, the fundamental fact is that the present moment is the only time that you can ever create change. The past is, uh, doesn't exist anymore. The past is gone and the future has, is, doesn't exist yet. If you're going to create change at any, uh, in any part of your life that's substantial, you have to do it in the present moment. And in order to create change in the present moment, you have to bring people's attention into the present moment. And so many of us spend so much of our time on autopilot that we don't have, we're not paying attention to the, what's going on in the moment, which is really the key to unlocking 
uh, change. So hopefully this maybe this brings it back to the behavioral level, the day-to-day level. You know, if you can learn to turn off your autopilot, then you can actually um, open all kinds of doors that are invisible to other people. You can, um, you don't even have to know what your blind spots are because when you turn off your autopilot and you step into a new, uh, you know, into a new direction, you will discover things that you wouldn't have discovered otherwise. Yeah. Just think about it this way. If you're, you have, you may have your autopilot where you drive to work or take a train or however you get to work. If, if, if the, if there's construction and you have to find a new way, you have to go a different way. You can't do it on autopilot. You have to pay attention because you haven't done it before. And so uh, turning off your autopilot is really, a, I guess, a kind of a trick to bring your attention back into the actual present moment to get you off your script, which then has the very pleasant side effect of bringing other people off of their script. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I was at the uh, I was at the doctor's office today and uh, I was uh the receptionist, I hadn't seen her. I, I saw, I met her once like three weeks ago and I saw her again, but, um, I remembered her name and, um, so I called her by her name and that just threw off her script completely in a good way, in a very pleasant way, you know? Yeah. And this kind of stuff happens every day. Uh, you know, when I first came to register, I was signing in, but it wasn't the, uh, it wasn't the same, uh, uh, person who was the receptionist. And uh, she asked me these questions. And I remember getting the same questions the last three times I was there. And I said, you must be really boring to ask those questions all day long. And she just completely changed her demeanor. And uh, suddenly I, I was talking to a real human being, you know, and, and uh, she laughed and she talked about it. And she or her coworkers started talking about how boring it was and how they wish they had a window or a video game or something. And it was much the whole that whole experience is much more pleasant because um, we, I mean, just think about all the things we go through every day that are scripted and, or we just kind of submit to it or we, we play our role. We don't have to, you don't have to. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and, you know, I love, so we open with sort of the macro and as we come to a close now, we, we talk about the micro and the everyday that resonates and, and sort of affects that. Right. So, it's, it's not, I love this idea that becoming aware of our beliefs and the fact that they're created and that they create blind spots, et cetera, is a huge step forward, but it seems sort of so daunting. And I love the simplicity of just like, just try and disrupt your routine and disrupt the routine of others and then see what happens. I love the analogy of driving, uh, taking your everyday route. Well, if that's closed, you're going to discover new things in a new route sort of because of that. And the same thing happens in our day-to-day lives and our routines as as we uh, sort of wrap up this episode, though, I do want to ask you a couple routine questions. There are five questions we ask um, <laughs> okay. all guests. So if I'm on autopilot, I, f- I forgive me, but I know that you won't be because I haven't told you the questions yet. So uh, the first one, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, wow. Well, uh, yeah, we, we just started with the big one. We just figured it wasn't, uh, you know, the one that, uh, the one that comes immediately to mind for me is the, um, um, uh, not someone I've ever met or spoken to, but a guy named Joseph Campbell who, uh, wrote a book. Uh, he, he was, a, he studied comparative mythology, he compared all the religions and, uh, and belief systems of the world 
and uh, found some main common themes. He wrote a famous book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And uh, when George Lucas made Star Wars, he he based it on this guy's research into like the, he was creating a a hero's myth and um, had all these kind of components to it. But one of the, what, what he had distilled in looking at all these different belief systems from uh, across the history of the world, what he was able to distill down as the kind of the one piece of advice is the thing that first came to mind <laughs> for me, which and he described that as uh, follow your bliss. Hmm. You know, if you feel inside of yourself a calling uh, or a, you have something that you truly love or find joy in, uh, just follow that. You know, let that be your guide. Let that be your North Star. Um, uh, the thing that you find uh, brings you happiness and joy. Just follow it. And I think that's wonderful. I've 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 followed that advice my whole life, and it's it's worked out really well for me. That's good. Uh, what's an ideal work day look like for you? <laughs> uh, well, this today's a pretty good day. I. Uh, um, get to talk to you. And, uh, I think for me, it's a combination. I probably need about 50% of it being social, whether it's working with customers or, uh, doing a podcast like this, where we're talking about ideas. Um, I'm, I'm very passionate about that. Uh, but I also need some quiet time, some reflection time. So I need time to read, think, draw, sketch. Um, you know, I need some I need some reflection time. So probably an ideal day is a little work day has got a little bit of both. I like that. Um, speaking of ideas, uh, what are you reading right now? Oh, what's the name of it? I'm, I just started this, uh, uh, new book called, uh, what's it called? Um, it's about, uh, some sailors that got stranded in Africa in the 1800s, but I can't think of the title of it. It's, Anyway, I'm I'm sorry, I can't think of the title of it. Uh, we will uh, we'll do a search and we'll see if we can find it. If we can, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, yeah. What do you? So we we actually do have a beliefs question as part of our routine. What do you believe that most people don't? It's called Skeletons on the Zahara. Ah, a, we found it. A okay, true cool. story of survival by Dean King, and I found it because it was recommended uh, by uh, a friend of mine, Kevin Kelly, and. Uh, it's, uh, so far it's fascinating. I'm already on the, I'm already in the Sahara in the 1800s and, uh, like, I'm like really, you know, curious about what's going to happen next. It's a true story. Awesome. Okay, cool. All right. So we've got that. So what do you believe that most people don't? I am an optimist. I I'm an optimist and a pragmatist. So I think there, I, believe that there is always a way. Uh, and I think that's something, uh, I think there's a lot of fear in the world. And, um, I think, uh, a lot of people are limited by their fears. And, uh, I am, I, I, I think I'm, I don't know if I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but I think, um, this belief that there is always a way that this, the current situation is never something that sh- needs to be taken as uh, unchangeable or immutable. That's, that's a pretty core belief of mine. Hmm. I like it. So our final question, the title of the show is radio free leader in, in your view, what makes someone a leader? Well, I mean, a very, 
uh, maybe kind of smug answer might be you're, you're a leader if people follow you. Uh, <laughs> and if nobody's following you, then you're not really a leader. I, I think, you know, to me, that's probably the core of it, right? That's fair. That's fair. Um, so, all right. So let me, let me adapt the question. So now people are following you. What makes someone a good leader? <laughs> yeah. A good leader is people is, is, is someone, uh, well, that's a great question. Um, uh, a good leader is someone who is able to, uh, somehow pick up on a, uh, a thing that needs to happen that has, never, maybe never been quite articulated in the way that it needs to be, or they're able to kind of recognize, um, the next thing that needs to happen. I I sort of have a sort of, I guess, organic idea about life that everything is always in a state of becoming the next thing, Hmm. whether it's a company, uh, or a person, a child who's growing or, you know, a, uh, a family, there's always the next stage of development that the thing is trying to become. And a leader is someone, a good leader to me is someone who's able to facilitate that process, who's able to say, you know what, I think this is what I believe the next thing is that, that we need to become and is able to, to articulate that and explain that to people. I mean, I do, do believe my company's called Explain. I've spent my life on explanation. So I do think that leadership has a lot to do with explanation. And it has to do with before you can explain something, you have to recognize what is that thing that this organization is trying to become, and then to be able to explain that and articulate to people in such a way that they can say, oh, yeah, that is what we're trying to become. That's the next step for us. That's what a leader is. And to me, part part of that is um, having a uh, not only an articulation of what is that next thing, but how does that fit into a bigger picture of who we are and why we exist and, and why we're here in the first place? What's our reason for being? That's a that's a great answer, and makes me glad that I asked a better version of the question. So, there <laughs> we go. so uh, the, uh, the book we've been discussing most is again is Liminal Thinking: Create the Change You Want by Changing the Way You Think by Dave Gray. He's also got fantastic books like Game Storming, um, which is a great one, and, and several other ones. So, I encourage you to check out. Is it is it? Do we Google Dave Gray? Do we go to xplane.com? Where where would you send us? Uh, well, my company's explain. It's xplane.com. Um, the easiest place to find me is uh, explainer.com. So it's just xplaner.com. That's my personal website. Um, and you can, from uh, uh, from explainer.com, you can find all, all the other stuff that I'm doing, books and so forth. Perfect. Perfect. So we'll have links to all that in the show notes again at davidberkus.com slash podcast. Dave, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you for having me. It's really, it was, it was a blast. I really enjoyed it.